You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hi, I'm Lenny Goldberg, and thanks for joining me today. We're at the end of the month of May. It was a month of landmark days for the state of Israel. You had Memorial Day, followed by Independence Day, and then Jerusalem Day, all that in the month of May. And in the Jewish world, we have a lot of different approaches how to relate to these days. And that's because we have a lot of different views regarding how one looks at the state of Israel in general. Because the state of Israel, it's something new, something that's new on the scene. And religious Jewry is built largely around tradition, Masoret. That is, most Jewish issues and questions are settled by Jewish law. And if you don't have the law, you have the Masoret, you have the traditions of thousands of years to know what to do. But the state of Israel, it's something new. There's no tradition regarding it, and everybody could look at it differently. And that's why, just going back to the Chagashvot, this is parenthetical, the whole story of Ruth, why was her conversion so contested throughout generations? Even up to the times of King David, they still didn't know if he was a legitimate Jew because his great-grandmother Ruth had converted. Why was there such a big dispute all the time? Why couldn't they just give the halacha regarding a Moabitess if she can convert or not? What's the problem? Because there was no tradition. There were no Moabite women who were converting. It's the first time it happened, so they didn't know what to do about Ruth. So you have this raging machloket, what to do about her, especially when everybody, the Moabite women are marrying, they're dropping dead. That just adds to the doubt. But the emergence of the state of Israel, that's also something new. So there isn't a clear approach, and every camp has its own view. And that's what we call hashkafa. Everybody's got their own hashkafa. What is the significance of the state of Israel? You have religious Jews who view the state of Israel as the work of the Satan. It's the devil's work. Then you have Jews who say it's the beginning of the redemption process. And then you have a lot of Jews who say, it's not that or that. It's nothing. It's just a lot of Jews, like in Poland. Now, if you're outside of Israel or you're new in Israel, you might not be familiar with all the outlooks out there. Somebody listening to a station like this, Israel Newstalk Radio, it's probably somebody who loves Israel and everything about it. And you hear those wholesome commercials. Hi, I'm Irving. And I live in Efrat. And I love Israel. And that's geared for the Jews who love the state and everything about it. It's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I'm not knocking it. But I thought it would be interesting to hear other approaches because you have many communities who don't say Hallel on Independence Day and they don't identify with these landmark days. To them, it's just any other day. And they don't view the state as some kind of redemptive process. You got the classic Haredi view that we're in the exile. They don't see this state as anything special. We're still in the exile. That's what they'll tell you. And I see it all the time. Young kids coming in from America, learning in yeshiva for a year here in Israel, come to the Shamron. They tell you we're in Galus, Galut. It's hard for me to get that one down. How can you be in the land of Israel and also be in the exile? And they really mean it. They don't mean that we're mentally in the exile. They say this is a Galus. There are a lot of religious Jews who say that. From their point of view, if there's no temple and the Mashiach hasn't come yet, then we're in the Gullus. So I try to give them some logic. First of all, exile means you're exiled from out of your country. You can't be in exile if you're in the land of Israel. Physically, it's impossible. And besides, if this is the exile, this is Gullus, then why do we take Trumotu Masrot, right? We, we take tithes, that's only in the land of Israel. We observe the mitzvah of Shemitah every seven years. You can't do that in the exile. So we must be in Eretz Israel physically from that point of view. Yeah, I get it. We got a government that doesn't go by Torah. We even have a lot of wicked people in the government. And the government does a lot of wicked things. But how does that make it exile? If you go back to the days of the Bible, we had a lot of situations 
where we had evil kings, evil governments, Ahem and Manasseh and Yeravam ben Avat, very evil kings doing a lot of bad things, a lot of idol worship going on. But would anybody say, we're in the exile? We're in the exile? No, they'd say we're in the land of Israel with some really bad kings. And one of the reasons that most of the Haredi Jews, and I don't want to stereotype, but most of the Haredi Jews, they don't see the state as something special. They don't celebrate Independence Day. They don't say Hallel, so forth. Because they look at the state like this. If you go back to the first time the Jews came into the land of Israel, it was with Joshua B. Nun. Joshua, the son of Nun. Now that's a good religious Jew. He's the servant of Moses. The second time around, for the second temple period, who led us there? It was Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel. We're talking about some serious from Jews. But look who's leading us this third time. Ben-Gurion, Chaim Weitzman. I mean, these are Jews that not only are they secular, but they're almost heretical. So that's why many Jews are saying, how can this be God's hand? How could this be a wonderful state? How could this be the beginning of the redemption if it's being led by apicorsim, heretical and secular Jews who do a lot to de-Judaize the country? We're talking about people who blew up the Altalena. They stole the Yemenite babies from their mothers when those Yemenite Jews made Aliyah and they stole their babies and sold them. And you have the book Perfidy written by Ben Hecht, which is all about the trial of Rudolf Kastner. And he was part of the Jewish establishment. And basically, he abandoned the Jews of Hungary to save a couple hundred of his friends. What I'm saying is that these Zionist leaders who were considered the fathers of the state, I mean, they got a very dubious past. Kastner and Weizmann, these are the Avotenu, these are the fathers of secular Zionism. And so because of the origins of secular Zionism has a lot of ugliness to it, a lot of Jews just can't identify with this state being something wonderful. So you have to understand them. And there's a lot of answers you can give to why the Almighty brought about a state through these kinds of Jews and why Becholzot, even though they were not the best of Jews, they weren't religious, even Apikorsim, even heretics, why and how would they be a channel for God to bring the state of Israel in our days? And the most common source to answer it is from Ezekiel 36, which is a really powerful prophecy where Hashem says that he'll bring the Jews back to Israel, not for their sake, not that they deserve it, but for the sake of his holy name, which had been so desecrated in the long exile. That is, it's not like the founders had special schuyot, that they were righteous. But God says there in Ezekiel 36 that he's going to bring the redemption anyway, not for your sake, but for my holy namesake. So that's a really powerful source to explain it. And maybe we'll go into depth on that in one of my podcasts one day. But I want to bring another example of how Hashem can bring the salvation through those who aren't the most worthy. And it's in the Haftorah we read a couple days ago. You know, we read about Samson the judge this past Shabbat. And Samson was a very intriguing character. And the sages teach us that the reason why the Philistines gouged out Samson's eyes because it was measure for measure. He went after his eyes, so his eyes were gouged out. That is, when he married the Philistine girl, he went after his eyes. Now, it's kind of a subtle thing. Samson was a tzaddik, he was a righteous judge, but that's what Chazal say. And if you want, you can listen to my Bible podcasts and get a deeper look at Samson and his motives. But for now, let's just say he went after his eyes. And so his eyes were gouged out, measure for measure. So Rabbi Kahana asks, well, why is it? 
how is it that Hashem would bring the salvation through Samson? Why is he the guy to be the judge and to bring a little bit of Yeshua, of a redemption for the Jewish people at that time? You can't find some skenim, some elders, some righteous people who didn't go after their eyes? Why through Samson if he had this flaw? So the rabbi answers, because the other tzaddikim in that generation, they might not gone after their eyes, but they were afraid of the Philistines. So Hashem used Shimshon. He used Samson because he's ready to do it. He had the courage to go against the Philistines with his flaws. And so the parallel is that those secular Zionists, the secular Jews who established the state of Israel, Hashem used them as his vehicle because they were ready for it. They wanted it. Hashem can only use the material that he's got that's at his disposal. And so, yeah, there were many, many religious Jews who came to the land of Israel in those days with great self-sacrifice. And through the years, Jews made Aliyah to the land in the 1800s, in the early 1900s. But they didn't have the concept of a state. They were like, let's go and settle the land. It's a mitzvah. But Herzl, even though it was secular, he had a vision of a state, a Jewish state, independent, not dependent on charity and schnorring from the Baron Rothschild or Montefiore or other wealthy philanthropist Jews. No, not a state that's under the thumb of the Turks or the British. No, but our own state, we need our own country. That was a vision. And again, many Jews who settled the land, they didn't have such a vision. So Hashem used those secular Zionists as his vehicle to bring the state. Because Hashem wanted us to have a state after 2,000 years of Chilul Hashem and degradation and humiliation that Jews are walking around wandering this earth without a home and the Gentiles are looking at them and saying, hey, if you're the people of God, why are you exiled from your land? So Hashem brought us back and he brought us back through them. So that's how you can have a state that even though it was established by not the best of Jews, it's still God's hand and the beginning of the redemption. And besides, there are clear signs. There's the kibbutz galiot, the ingathering of the exiles, miraculous war victories, the land flowering and giving off fruit, something that hadn't happened in the past 1800 years. So there's clear signs without any connection to the establishers of the state or to the governments that run the state. Forget about all that for a second. That is not relevant. Okay, moving on. This past Thursday night was the holiday of Shvot, and the custom is to learn Torah all night. And I was asked by the Yeshuv to give a shiur from 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock in the morning. And what did I give a shiur? And of course, a David HaMelech. David HaMelech is very appropriate for the holiday of Shavuot. David HaMelech was born and died on the holiday of Shavuot. The book of Ruth we read on Shavuot. And King David, of course, is Ruth's great-grandson. Anyway, I was given over the shiur. And like in most episodes regarding King David, he's killing a lot of people. You know, he's killing Philistines. He's killing all kinds of enemies. And in the chapter I was discussing, he, he was doing his thing. And right off the bat, one of the participants in the shiur said, that's why he wasn't allowed to build the temple because he spilled so much blood. And I was thinking, why does everybody know that? That's the only thing they know about David Melech, that because he spilled a lot of blood, he's not allowed to build the temple. That's it. Everybody knows that. Why do they know it? Because it's repeated over and over again. It's repeated because it fits in nicely to what we want Judaism to look like, that we're nice and we don't like to kill. And so we'll keep hammering home that verse where it says that David spilled too much blood, he couldn't build the temple. Now, the fact is, it is written in the Bible. It's written in the book of Chronicles. When David is telling his son Solomon that he wasn't allowed to build the temple, Hashem told him, you cannot build the temple because you spilled a lot of blood before me. It says that. So let's try to understand the simple meaning of that. That David, because he spilled a lot of blood, he was disqualified 
for building the temple. Now, on the most simple level, the temple, the Beit HaMikdash, it's a symbol of peace, of tranquility in the world. And obviously, David is not a symbol of peace. Who is a symbol of peace? His son, Shlomo. Even his name, Shlomo, from the word Shalom, he's the symbol of peace because he inherited the peace that David fought for when he conquered all the nations. So it was built in Shlomo's times. That's the simple understanding. Because if not, what are you going to say? He was disqualified because he spilled too much blood. He was wrong to kill Goliath. Is that it? He shouldn't have killed all those Philistines. Did something wrong there? So obviously there's something else going on. And I want to bring a Midrash now in Yelkot Shimoni. And it's going to turn this perception upside down. It's in Shmuel Bet, chapter 6, Midrash Kuf Memhei. It says like this. God said to David, You will not build a house in my name. Why? Because you spilt a lot of blood before me. That's what Hashem said to David. When David heard that, he got all upset. He said, I've been disqualified for building the temple. What is this? Are the leftists, right? What, I wasn't supposed to kill the Philistines? I was supposed to throw flowers at them? What's going on here? And the Almighty said to David, Don't you worry, because every drop of blood you spilled was like a sacrifice on the altar. And they learned that out from the verse that you spilt a lot of blood lefanai before me. And when it says lefanai before me, that's the lashon, that's the wording that is used in the book of Vayikra in Leviticus when you're talking about a korban. So Hashem is telling David, the blood you spilled, it's on the level of a sacrifice to me. So David asks the obvious question, Omalo, Imken, if that's so, Lama Eni Bonelto, then why can't I build it? What makes me disqualified then? Omalo Kodesh Borchu, the Almighty told him, If you build it, it will last forever and never be destroyed. And David said, Hey, that's a good thing. But then the Almighty said to him, it's revealed before me that the Jewish people in the future are going to sin. And I will take up my fury on the Beit HaMikdash and the Jewish people will be saved. That is, instead of destroying the Jewish people, I am going to destroy the temple in their place. But if you build it, I can't destroy the temple and I'll end up, God forbid, destroying the Jewish people. So in order to save the Jewish people, I can't let you build it. And then the Almighty says, but because you so much wanted to build the temple, instead, your son Shlomo, he will build it, but it will be called in your name, as we call the temple, Mizmor Shia Chanukat Abayat LeDavid. We call it the House of David. And that's how the Midrash explains it. Not that he's disqualified from building the temple because something's wrong with him that he spilled blood, but he's so great for spilling that blood that anything he builds can't be destroyed. And the temple had to be destroyed because if it wasn't, the Jewish people would be. So that short changes the situation, doesn't it? But you'll never hear this quoted. You'll only hear one thing. David a Melech, he spilled too much blood, can't build the temple because Judaism teaches us you got to be nice. And so now that we've capsulized David Amelech, let's move on to something else that fits in with our you know, Western mindset. Moving on, there was a news item in last week's Jerusalem Post, and it was about this project founded by Ezra Beinart, who was the son of Peter Beinart, who was the outspoken advocate for an independent Palestinian state, right? Well, his son, and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, he's got this project going on where he wants Jewish kids to get the Palestinian perspective. So what is he doing? He's launching 
this initiative to expose young American and Israeli Jews to Palestinian voices through video chats, with Zoom and Facebook, because he says that these Jewish kids sorely lack the Palestinian perspective. And this is what he says, I quote him, and that's why I decided to create the group to inform young Jews about the other side of the story, which I don't think most Jewish students know much about. So what did he do? Who was the first speaker who spoke to these kids? None other than Rashida Talib, that swine from Michigan. And she chatted with them whether anti-Zionism is indeed anti-Semitism. And she spoke about her grandmother, who she always speaks about, Muftia. And she portrays her grandmother, and she does this all the time, as the face of Israel's oppression of the Palestinians. So anyway, Rashida Talib gave him a mouthful so these kids can now know the Palestinian side. After all, we know they're so well-versed in the Jewish perspective. I'm sure their Jewish education taught them Jewish history and about their heritage and their right to the land and the justice of their cause. So now, because they know so much about Judaism and Jewish history, they got to hear the Palestinian perspective. So pathetic. And speaking of Israel bashing and Jew-hating congressmen, Ilan Omer, she's the congresswoman from Minnesota. And you know, in 1990, Rabbi Kahana was at Minnesota University. And already then, it was swarming with Arabs. And he was dealing with Arabs and leftists And they were heckling him all the way through. It was a very hostile environment. And they even pushed him off the stage at one point. I mean, where was the security? I don't know. But the rabbi got right back on that stage. And it's a video. And of course, you'll only be able to hear it. You can't see it. But the Arabs are in the crowd. And he's kind of goading them on, using them as props. Because at the end of the day, he's trying to reach the Jewish students who attended. And they're sitting there kind of quietly, all timid, probably afraid. The rabbi is kind of provoking the Arab student body. But again, the message at the end of the day is to the Jewish kids there. And at one point he's going to say to them, isn't it great to hear a Jewish speaker who isn't a wimp? What a pleasure. And you'll hear that. And throughout this speech, the Arabs are cursing and he's got the microphone. So he's got the upper hand. And as these curses are being shouted out and all these other unintelligible words, the rabbi says dryly, the academic standards in this university are plummeting rapidly. Anyway, I'm going to play this for you. You'll hear some voices. The rabbi's answering these Arabs back. Then you'll finally hear the Jews cheering on the rabbi when he gives him a little dose of Jewish pride. So listen to this couple of minutes of the rabbi at Minnesota University in 1990. So every Jew who is sitting here and who is against Kahana understand they're not against Kahana. They're against Zionism. They're against the Jewish state. And every Arab who is honest, and most of them are honest, will admit it. (laughs) It's not going to help you. Clearly, the uh, level of, you know, academics at this college has reached a new high. The fact is, I have the microphone, and I can outshout them at any time. Let's continue. Let us continue now. People will have a chance to speak or uh, curse at the proper time. The truth of the matter is, The Intifada did not begin three years ago. The Intifada began 70 years ago in 1920, when Jews were murdered by Arabs in Jerusalem that they don't call Jerusalem, they call Al-Quds. You know why it began in 1920? Because the Arabs knew that Zionism, Zionism's purpose was to create a Jewish state. And so, they're against a Jewish state. They're not against a Jewish state within the 1967 boundaries. 
Because if that's all that bothered them, the 1967 boundaries, how come there was no peace in 1966? In 1947, the UN proposed a partition plan to create two states, Jewish, Arab. Guess who said no? Guess who said no? You have 20, 20 chances to guess who said no. The Arabs said no and, and, and they went to war. They could have had not only what they call the West Bank, but they, but they could have had Western Galilee. They could have had Jaffa. They could have had Ramle. They could have had Lida. They could have had Naria. They could have had Ashdod and Ashkelon and Beersheba. They said no. You know why? Because they wanted everything. So they went to war and they lost. And they lost. And then they went to war in 1967 again and they lost. And they're in a rut. And they're in a rut. Because, fellas, if you ever be so dumb as to try a, a war again, this time Jordan belongs to us too. Isn't it great for a bad time to hear a Jewish speaker speak who isn't a wimp? Oh, what a pleasure. Everybody talks now about there are Arab moderates, the latest kinds of Arab moderates. There are, are, there are even moderate terrorists today, <laughs> moderate terrorists, who murder Jews moderately. There's not one Arab standing here who won't tell you that Jaffa is Arab too. Right? Right. There's not one Arab that won't tell you that Tel Aviv is Arab too, and that Haifa is Arab too, and that the Galley is Arab. Of course, that's what they believe. So don't fall into this stupid trap. If Israel would only give up the lands which the Arabs already had in 1967, then there would be peace. They don't want peace. They want to wipe out Israel. And they will never do that. It belongs to us and not to them, period. <laughs> Sit down. You'll get your turn right now. I speak. This is, indeed the, this is not the Knesset, fella. One person speaks here at a time. That was Rabbi Meir Kahana at the Arab-infested Minnesota University in 1990, battling the Arabs and leftists in the crowd. If that was the student body in 1990, I can imagine what it's like today. You got to love it when the rabbi says everybody will get a chance to ask questions or curse at the proper time. In fact, there was a very long questions and answer period after that lecture. Maybe I'll bring some of that next time. And what a shame that the Jewish youth are being exposed to the rhetoric and the views of wimpy Jews or Jew-haters of the likes of Rashida Talib, instead of being exposed to the words of Rabbi Meir Kahana, words of truth, words of Jewish pride. So what do they give these kids instead? Video calls from Rashida Talib, Yamach Shama. Heaven help us. That's it for me. Don't forget to listen to my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. It's a podcast on Spotify. The holiday of Matan Torah has passed. Start receiving that Jewish Bible and I'll be back, God willing, for more.